I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange. We announced an interview with historian Douglas Harvey about his book, Theater of Empire, which juxtaposes the colonizing mercantile worldview of the English invaders of the Americas with the embodied and ecological perspective of this land's indigenous cultures in the 18th and 19th century via forms of performance like ritual ceremony, circuses, and minstrel shows. However, due to some technical difficulties, we've had to reschedule that conversation for a future date. So for tonight's show, we'll replay my interview with James Scott, author of Two Cheers for Anarchism, and perhaps best known for his 1987 classic Weapons of the Weak, Everyday Forms of Peasant Resistance. Scott joined me in the studio in March of this year when he was in Bloomington delivering one of the patent lectures at Indiana University. Now, James Scott on being domesticated by the state. Here comes the thing called Ganja Fibon, yeah. Ganja Fibon, yeah. I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange on WFHB. Our show today, Great Heaps of Grain and People, explores anarchist tendencies in opposition to domestication, particularly that of state agriculture. James Scott is our guest. Them get for me nerves, now me see the whole of them a run like a safaway. Them go cut down me herbs, and I tell me say they plant cassava, yes. Now them fly like a bird, and me see the whole of them a run like a safaway. That was PZ with the song Cassava. Cassava root, also called yucca or manioc, is farina de guerre, or the bread of war a food that escapes the clutches of the state, feeding the people that James Scott calls barbarians by design. Not so the counting house grains like wheat or corn or rice. There seems to have been a massive intellectual and political push lately to frame the state as a clear force for good, all in the face of fraudulent war, fraudulent economics, and terror practices. Steven Pinker's Better Angels and the American Psychological Association's Deal with the Torture Devils. Martin Seligman's cadre of positive psychologists telling us to come on, get happy in the face of mass incarceration, police violence, lead poisoning in municipal water supplies, no excuses, urban charter schools, forever war, and climate catastrophe. Behaviorists want to create the predictable human in the same way Monsanto wants to make predictable crops. My guest in this hour is James Scott, whose writing is a trek through the history of state-making and resistance to being shackled to governance. His most recent book is Two Cheers for Anarchism. He tells us why only two cheers rather than three. And he's working on a book about how sedentary agriculture, grain production, cultivates conditions that make states possible domesticating animals, plants, and humans. He was in Bloomington to deliver the patent lectures at Indiana University, The Domestication of Fire, Plants, Animals, and Us, and A Brief History of Flight from the State. James Scott is Sterling Professor of Political Science and Professor of Anthropology and founding director of the program in Agrarian Studies at Yale University and the author, most recently, of Two Cheers for Anarchism. This is a pre-recorded conversation. Mm-hmm. 
Me say the way them set it is for things get harder. Check say we fool, that's why them jada kyada. My first question was why only two chairs for anarchism? Um, the reason why not only two chairs is because there seem to be two things that are that I disagree with in any case about the sort of anarchist view of life. Um, and one of them is the idea that we don't need a state at all. Uh, and it seems to me it's hopelessly utopian uh, to imagine that uh, we could construct a life uh, given the fact that there are eight billion of us organized into nation states without a state structure. And so it seems to me our tr the trick is to domesticate or control this leviathan and I'm very pessimistic about our ability to do it but I don't see any way of avoiding a state structure of one kind or the other. I also think that um, the original anarchists, if you read them carefully, they also believed that uh, politics would disappear because science and technology were providing us with unitary, decisive, um, definitive answers to all the social questions we had about how organized life should be conducted, how policy reform should take place, and so on. So they had the idea that um, when scientists had sorted out all this knowledge, there wouldn't be any politics anymore. And I think that was vastly wrong. Um, that was a kind of, that's the high modernist core at the bottom of a lot of anarchist thought, and it's a part of the anarchist thought that I disagree with. Uh, uh, now, that, I, I don't want you to forget that the, it's two cheers for anarchism, which means that I do have two cheers for anarchism. <laughs> it's just that I'm uh, I'm not buying the whole package. Well, uh, making those points in particular, uh, scientism maybe uh, at that point, the idea that we're still uh, in that place now where it seems like we're that there's utopian thinking going on in terms of um, thinkers like Steven Pinker and that group of people who figure they have or the West at least, has won the idea of how to govern the entire world or how to govern people generally. The the idea that the Western state, I suppose, or the Western Leviathan is the best of all possible um, governments. Well, without talking specifically about Pinker, it seems to me that it's, it's it, it beggars the imagination that anyone who looks at current situation of world resources, world environment, the destruction and extinction of species, the idea that, I mean, as far as I see it, uh, we've gotten ourselves into a pretty fix, and uh, we have, we are the most successful invasive species in world history. There are now seven billion of us, uh, and we now determine the life world of every other species on the planet. So I think of us as a bunch of incompetent zookeepers who've somehow fallen heir to a zoo of our own making and don't know quite how to manage it. And it looks as if the probabilities for a catastrophic result are more than just finite. They're substantial. Uh, and so how one can look at the consequences of governance by states, particularly since the Industrial Revolution and the results of kind of scientific forms of policy making, and then ask, well, how do we get ourselves in this fix, can scarcely be an optimist about uh, what we've done with science and the nation state. Do you get a sense that there's an idea that the winner of this global race for dominance will be able to then um, 
minimize the carrying capacity of, of, of the world in a sense that if you win, you can then start to uh, um, diminish carrying capacity in a sense by policies of food and water, et cetera, things of that nature? Uh, a friend of mine calls this uh, the vision of eco-fascism, mm-hmm. right, in which you would get then a world state that would restrict consumption, restrict reproduction, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I am not optimistic. First of all, I don't think it's likely to happen. And were it to happen, I, you would have to have a lot more faith than I do in our ability to intervene and our scientific knowledge uh, of what ought to be done. You'd have to have that kind of faith that I don't actually have, right? I have the feeling that uh, this is likely to be a sad thing to say, but it seems to me that no one's going to pay much attention to the actual limits of uh, ecological carrying capacity and climate change until we have a catastrophe of one kind or another that will be a kind of global wake-up call. You have reviewed uh, Jared Diamond's The World Until Yesterday and the London Review of Books back in September 2013. Did your book, um, Two Cheers for Anarchism, come out approximately the same time? I don't remember if it was 2012 or... came out a little a little earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Although there's not much connection between those two books... Uh, I, but I was. I have just finished a draft of a book about the earliest agrarian states and how we went from being hunters and gatherers to agriculture. Is mostly stuff on Mesopotamia and so mm-hmm. on. And I should say, actually, I thought Guns, Germs, and Steel, although largely a derivative book, I thought it was a really interesting and good book and made a, a real contribution by putting those things uh, together, especially the germs part of it. And so uh, it's, I'm not at all, uh, it's not as if I don't like some of Jared Diamond's work. I, I thought less of Collapse, and I thought that The World Until Yesterday was both sloppy and, if you don't mind me saying so, a lazy book, right, Uh, of someone who just kind of relaxed and thought that whatever he had to say was a deathless prose. Mm. And uh, so it was a a model for me of what not to do as you grow old. And And as you know, my major objection to him was his basic assumption that we can infer what life was like 10,000 years ago by looking at contemporary hunters and gatherers in the last century, when in fact these contemporary hunters and gatherers have been living in a world of states for the last 5,000 years. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me it's just completely uh, impermissible to assume that we can infer our own past history before agriculture uh, from contemporary hunters and gatherers. I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. My guest is James Scott, author of Two Cheers for Anarchism, Seeing Like a State and Weapons of the Weak. You make these points that there are uh, societies still that we'd like to sort of uh, push into that space, either call barbarians or savages, that they still exist, and we look at them as primordial people almost, or uh, pre-civilized uh, people, and as you say, that we can look at them and imagine the world before civilization. And you make this point throughout much of your work that you know, there's a long history of how these uh, that various peoples go back and forth between states and non-states, between right. hunting and gathering and, and working in uh, an, an agrarian 
Canadian system as well, that these are relationships that have evolved. Um, talk a little bit about that then in terms of your uh, recent work and this uh, upcoming patent lecture as well. Uh, the two lectures, I think, work on the idea of being domesticated by grain production as well as the idea, I think, um, you know, of escaping the state, of, mm-hmm. of having somewhere to run to, in a sense, or having a hill to climb or uh, of Correct. some sense. So give us a little bit about that. So first, the question of uh, whether these peoples uh, who are today hunters and gatherers are primordial peoples. Um, my hero, in my understanding of these things, is uh, a Frenchman named Pierre Clostre, who wrote a book called Society Against the State in the 1950s, I think. And he was the first person actually working in South America to argue that groups that were seen as Stone Age people who had been left behind, who never discovered agriculture, the Guarani, the Siriono, the Yanomamo, uh, that these peoples were, in fact, had been agricultural peoples and who had left agriculture because of the Spanish settlements and the disease connected with them and the forced labor. And in in a sense, in a search for freedom and to get away from these settlements, they became hunters and gatherers, right? And so they were not, if you like, original survivals from a Stone Age people. They were people who were what I call barbarians by design or by choice, who decided to take up hunting and gathering because it put them at the greatest distance from the state. And that's an argument I make on a much larger scale. For Southeast Asia, if you take all the areas from Vietnam all the way across to northeastern India through parts of Thailand, Laos, uh, Burma, and most of southwestern China, that uh, there's a huge population of something like 100 million uh, hill peoples. And most valley peoples believe, just as um, people previously did about the Yanomamo, that these were our living ancestors. That if you wanted to know what the Vietnamese were like before they discovered Buddhism and rice planting and civilization, that you could go to the hills because that's what we were like before then. My argument uh, is that almost all of these peoples over time were people who were running away from the state uh, because of taxes, wars, famines, conscription, and so on. And uh, that that we should see them more appropriately as people who became ethnic groups in the hills as a consequence of running away. Um, There are lots of examples of this from the Caribbean, the so-called maroon communities. There are lots of examples of the Cossacks, or a kind of classic example of serfs who ran away from European Russia, and if they went to the Don Basin, they became the Don Cossacks. But they they they, they were not genealogically or genetically a coherent population. They uh, were constituted by the act of moving to the periphery. So um, to continue a little bit on this, uh, on my patent lecture, it's actually the first part of this draft book. And I was interested in how we came to live in great heaps of grain and people and domesticated animals because Homo sapiens has been around for 200,000 years, and only about the last 8,000 years have we lived in towns uh, with domesticated animals and domesticated grains. And so it's a very thin slice of our uh, total history as a species. And I then examine uh, the domestication of fire, which is quite a long time ago, probably probably not even a Homo sapiens achievement, but a, a Homo habilis, a sort of previous 
hominids um, had fire. So fire gave us um, uh, gave us cooking, uh, and it gave us the capacity to manage landscape by starting fires and clearing brush, just the way the Native Americans did in order to create berries and browse for the deer and beaver and so on that they hunted. Um, and so fire was the first kind of key thing we had in terms of shaping the landscape uh, and cooking, and cooking is like an external digestive process. It not By cooking things, we can eat more things than we could otherwise eat. It denatures the protein and breaks down the cellulose uh, so that we, the radius of a meal is much smaller once you have cooking and can use fire to prepare, uh, to prepare foods. So that, if we think of this as the conditions for gathering, uh, that this is extremely important. The next one is, of course, the domestication of plants. And we then, uh, by domesticating, first of all, things like wheat and barley, uh, but you could make the argument for corn, maize, and uh, and rice as well in other places, um, that uh, this allowed us to also gather in concentrations of population that would otherwise have had to move in order to follow the food sources, the natural food sources that they had. And they practice what others call flood retreat agriculture, in which you have a flood in a river valley, and then the flood gradually retreats. And it leaves behind this nutritious soil that's kind of perfectly plowed, if you like, and all you have to do is throw seeds out. So this is the first kind of agriculture because it involves almost no labor. And you add to that the concentration of protein, the domestication of sheep and goats and cattle and so on, also provided in pigs at that point. And you then get the conditions for creating towns uh, for the first uh, for the first time. Uh, the only towns that existed before that were in wetlands areas where the ecology was so rich you could gather from lots of different places. In order to have a state, you had to have a tax grain. And so a rich wetland area that had towns, which you had in Mesopotamia before any states. This was a, a landscape of towns in which you couldn't have a state because there was no tax good that the government could control. Uh, and so only with uh, wheat and barley did you have something that grew above the ground, you could harvest, you could put in granaries, you could distribute as rations and so on. So and before, it was this constriction of major food sources to a great carbohydrate, a single carbohydrate that could form a tax good uh, that created the possibility for states. One, two, three, four. <laughs> One, two. Let me tell you how it will be. There's one for you, 19 for me. It's time for a break. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. My guest is James Scott, author of Two Cheers for Anarchism, Seeing Like a State and Weapons of the Week. We're talking about the ways a domesticated agriculture domesticates human thinking and prepares the way for the rise of the state. Oh, oh. 
Welcome back. You just heard Taxman by the Beatles. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange on WFHB. My guest is James Scott, Sterling Professor of Political Science and Professor of Anthropology at Yale University and author of Two Cheers for Anarchism, Seeing Like a State and Weapons of the Week. Scott was in Bloomington to deliver the patent lectures at Indiana University. This is a pre-recorded conversation. In this segment, James Scott compares what he calls the metronome of living of hunter-gatherers and the sedentary lives of the first city dwellers tied to a single grain crop. Well, it's really fascinating to imagine. I know that um, you know some of the first writing we've discovered in what cuneiform the you know is basically tax receipts or you know the the tracking of of, of, of grain and uh, livestock as well. Uh, two kids, uh, um, you know, here's your receipt uh, and please uh, pay pay at the door as you go out. Uh, it's an interesting um, uh, thesis that you you're imagining then that um, I think you say somewhere that the sedentary agriculture. Um, is necessary for state formation. It's not necessary. You don't have to have a state if you do st- sedentary agriculture, right. but it, without it, you wouldn't have these these Correct. this ability to, as you say, tax as much as, as anything else or gather people in one place and control right. them. I think you make the the point that it was wet rice in particular that is the the sort of best for gathering people. And, Correct. Um, so what? Where is the impulse? Like I guess part of it, as I as I have read you and and listened to some some of the things you said, um, when does the state happen in terms of the people who create the state? In a sense, sometimes there, there's a place where I, I wonder it makes sense that there's um, the landscape, the the tax base, the you know the the grain that grows above ground. When do people decide to be in charge, I suppose? When do people decide to, we should make a state, I should be empowered? Is, is, there, is there a way to understand that as well? Um, that's a really smart question you answered, and uh, we don't have any simple answer to it. That is to say, what, what we don't have is the circumstances under which, obviously, in these early towns, there were obviously merchants and prominent people. Uh, it's not as if these were egalitar- completely egalitarian towns. Uh, but that's not the same as having a state. And so the, actually the only thing I can correlate with a state, since we don't know much about the internal processes by which this differentiation took place, is the appearance of walls. Uh, it seems to me that if you have a defended place, right, um, then you have a place that essentially is laying claim to a certain kind of territory. And if there's a wall, it assumes that there's something important to protect behind the wall that you don't want to have taken away, either people or grain, and in most cases, both uh, people and and grain. And so my argument actually is that these walls are important because the appearance of these concentrations of populations also gave rise to infectious disease. And most of the diseases, most of the infectious diseases are diseases that exclusively come from the interaction between domesticated animals and human beings. And uh, they did not exist as diseases before the big, the con- these concentrations of population. And the result was huge rates of mortality in most of these uh, areas. And uh, my argument is that it was really important to keep people in and producing these grains because there are lots of reasons to 
fl flee, but particularly if there was an epidemic or a war uh, and so on. So the trick of the early states was to hold a population, right, a quasi-captive population. Some people would come for the opportunities, uh, I'm sure. Um, and how you held that population, it's interesting to me that, as near as I can tell, every early state conducted wars of capture. That is to say, what they were after was, oh, very, very rarely any real estate uh, or a particular place on the map. And this holds true up to the Romans and Greeks, as a matter of fact, that their wars are wars of capture in which they capture people and then bring them back to the center to work on the haciendas and the great landed estates of the Romans or the, or the Greeks or work in the quarries and the mines and so on. And so I, I argue in the book that I've just kind of finished a rough draft of that all of these early states had to use captive labor and that their wars were an effort to replenish population that they would lose either by epidemics or they would lose by people running away, right? And so it was, they had to, in a sense, keep, um, keep a population coming in to replace the losses that they had for these reasons. So you, you mentioned, Wallace, um, it's the, I guess, the epic that maybe many of us know, or Gilgamesh, you know, it's the right. first kind of wall story, I suppose. Gilgamesh is, is famous, uh, is well known because he, he re I rebuilt the wall, I believe, at the rather than building the wall, but fixed the wall, I think, maybe. But uh, that's interesting, too, to uh, imagine this happening. I think at the same time, we have to, uh, and you, you do this in a lot of your work, is you, you try to remind us that the geography was not as it is now. Right. So it's not of uh, the desert that it is now in many cases. It's a different world at that point. And sometimes it's kind of hard to have the imagination to see the world differently when you think of those things. Uruk and, and um, the idea of the, the towers and, and walls in, in a desert doesn't strike one as Eden or anything, you know, anything right. that, that sort of brings you to that sense of this was the, the first place you imagined the garden. Um, but all these things seem to become... Um, they seem to work together, right? The idea of the garden, the idea of the wall, the idea of enclosure, the idea of domestication, you know, the idea of making people as we make animals, as we make grain. We, we're creating, maybe it's, maybe it's the mono-everything, right? The monoculture, the monotheism, the, the mono... This, this is basically where we're going, it seems like, right? That that's the, I think, it, uh, I think this is your point in terms of, you know, the Hobbesian idea as well, is that you're making people fit this state aspect, I suppose. You said it better than I've said it. Uh, so uh, that's Just distilling everything you've that's said. The, the, uh, that's a large part of the argument that, that I have. The, um, so if you think of it this way, if you, if you think of hunters and gatherers, um, their sources of food uh, and their, the animals that they hunt, the things that they gather, are all, if you like, uh, plants or trees or animals, each of which have their own particular rhythm and migrations and maturity and so on. And so if you think of each of these as a kind of metronome, then the hunters and gatherers have to sort of know when the gazelles are likely to come through, when this bird migration, 
when the, these fruits are likely to be ripe and the following animals will come for the fruits and you can eat them too, like pigs and so on. Uh, and so they, they have to have this, if you like, encyclopedia of the natural world uh, that encompasses the metronome of all these different creatures and the things that they gather. To the degree... Uh, and it's not by any means complete, but when you get to sort of the early Mesopotamian states, a huge portion of their diet is based on uh, wheat and barley. At first wheat and then barley because there's a process of salinization that takes place um, of continuously cropped areas that are irrigated. And in that case, uh, you can't grow wheat anymore very successfully, so you switch to barley. In any case, my argument is that the metronome of these early humans who are grain cultivators is strapped pretty much to the the physical needs of the wheat plant or the barley plant and its growth and ripening and carrying and gathering and uh, threshing and so on. And so it's a single metronome and the, the and because it's a kind of settled planted agriculture, the shape of the household, the hearth, the family structure, the work routines, uh, the kind of life world of these people is more or less tied to the metronome of this major plant, right? I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. My guest is James Scott, author of Two Cheers for Anarchism. You could go further and say that the, the state is the domesticator of the human population uh, that it then encompasses by creating the patriarchal family as a form of control, by trying to maximize, actually, birth rates because population is so crucial to the early states. Um, and so just as the domestication of plants means control over their production, and just as the control, the domestication of animals means the control over the reproduction of sheep and goats and so on, uh, in the same way, you could argue that the state depends on the control over and the patriarchal family both depend on the control over the reproduction of women uh, in particular. And so that's, the, that's, that's taking the domestication from plants to animals, right. to homo sapiens, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and the routines that a state tries to impose on its population as well. Now, you, you also somewhere made, uh, made an interesting point about um, the book as well. Uh, it falls in this same category, right? We have the first writing that we're aware of in this same period. You could argue, I suppose, if you were wanting to argue with the young earth creationists that the world begins with the book um, the book is some, something like 6,000 years old at this point as well. At the same time, these things, the world that you can understand or put down and call God's word or things of that nature come out of the same period as well. So we haven't moved beyond that, that, that kind of ideology. And it's nice to read your work and understand these cultures that have worked against those kinds of ideologies, you know, the against the state, the state being right. the the you know example par excellence of of that beginning point of of domestication, I suppose. So, as you implied earlier, actually, uh, there are people who make the argument, which I'm sympathetic to. I think there's something to be said for it, although I'm by no means an expert. That in a sense, the first writing of the proto-cuneiform is are essentially 
tax receipts of one kind or another, or so many sheep coming in, so many sheaves of grain, and that and that it's essentially counting, right, uh, of things going into a warehouse and out of a warehouse and rations and so on. So the argument is that the purpose of the earliest writing uh, was state record keeping, uh, and that no writing existed before state record keeping. And what's interesting about that, of course, is that the early cuneiform was never meant to represent spoken speech, right? That is to say, uh, it's only much later that uh, language is used to represent what people actually say by, right, phonemes that correspond to the sound that they're, uh, that they're making. And at that point, you can get letters that say, you took the goats to the market, you bastard, you're going to send back the money and you haven't sent it, may you die, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, sort of uh, kind of, uh, we get letters that you recognize, right? Mm -hmm. In a kind of modern parlance uh, in, the same, in the same way. And I made the argument in a, in a book entitled The Art of Not Being Governed. I have a chapter that I call chapter six and a half, which it was a great struggle to get them to agree to have a chapter named six and a half. <laughs> Uh, and the reason it's called Six and a Half, it's about or oral cultures and written cultures. And, and my argument is that, and it's a, and the reason I call it chapter, chapter Six and a Half, because I don't have a lot of evidence for it, but I think it's worth uh, further exploration. And that is that most of the people in the hills in Southeast Asia have a story about how they once had writing and lost it. Either they lost it because they forgot the tablets or they wrote it on a skin that got burned or it got eaten by an animal or or the chinese uh put it uh, gave them the wrong side of the slate uh scrubbed it out whatever it's either of either a story of carelessness or treachery or betrayal in which they once had writing and now they no longer have writing but and it wasn't their it's not their choice they don't ever give it away no uh, no there no there's no story of that kind mm -hmm. um uh but my, partly because these people, of course, all live in a world in which people who have the book and who have writing are the civilized, superior people uh, to which they feel inferior. And, uh, but since many of these people came from valley circumstances in which they lived in areas in which there was a certain amount of literacy, I take it as completely plausible that they may once have had a, a minority uh, elite that was uh, that wrote, and when they fled to the hills, either the literate elite stayed behind because that wasn't their world and their skills right, made it sensible to stay in the valley, uh, or that it gradually died out in the hills. And and this, of course, this happens in in um, in post. Um, uh, after the fall of the Roman Empire, this happens in most of Europe. Latin just simply disappears, except for a few uh, monasteries here and there that keep it alive as a sacred language. But it disappears uh, as a kind of popular speech altogether. And there's a period called the Dark Age in Greece from 1100 to 700, during which we get our epics. And in that period, uh, you also have the disappearance of uh, Linear B script. And that's why it's called the Dark Age. And what happens is that in 700, the Greeks become literate again, but it's a different script borrowed from the Phoenicians that's more akin to modern Greek script. So there, there are other historic um, instances of people losing a literacy that they once had. And I, I make the argument that having an oral tradition allows you 
keep the sense of tradition and gradually shift the story to uh, slightly change your ancestors, your descendants, the itinerary that you took, the kingdoms that you pay obeisance toward. And so it's much more plastic than a fixed text that from which you can measure deviations. Yeah, I like, I think at one point you called it uh, a measure of heterodoxy, that it was something you could be, you'd be able to track. The book right. the book freezes your actions in a sense and, and you can track those changes. That's pretty interesting as well. There is unrest in the forest trouble with the trees for the maples want more sunlight and the oaks ignore their pleas. It's time for a break. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. My guest is James Scott, author of Two Cheers for Anarchism, Seeing Like a State and Weapons of the Week. We're talking about the ways a domesticated agriculture domesticates human thinking and prepares the way for the rise of the state. Welcome back. You just heard The Trees by Rush. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange on WFHB. My guest is James Scott, Sterling Professor of Political Science and Professor of Anthropology at Yale University and author of Two Cheers for Anarchism, Seeing Like a State and Weapons of the Week. Scott was in Bloomington to deliver the patent lectures at Indiana University. This is a pre-recorded conversation. In this segment, James Scott discusses the state of education and the use of standardized measurements as a method of flattening predictability. And we close with what Scott calls the impulse towards autonomy, using as an example his ideal of an anarchist old age home. Um, so we have the book, we have the garden, we have the state, we have grain, we have all the things that keep us uh, in one place and keep our thinking somewhat narrow, I assume, as well. It's one of those interesting uh, uh, things that we talk about today about the sort of narrowing of our intelligence by 
playing on these digital machines and keeping us in in our focus in a very narrow space as well. Even though there's tons and tons of things coming in, uh, nothing necessarily that you're actually engaged in. The hands are always idle now. It seems like right. <laughs> so um, you you mentioned you know the the idleness of other capacities when you move from hunter gatherer to domesticated to agrarian ways. You know you your brain itself stops tracking the environment or seeing anything around. I think you tell a story in Two Cheers for Anarchism about Squanto. It's a really nice example where you um, compare it with the farmer's almanac. Will you tell that story real quick? Since they were new to the planting of maize, uh, that the white settlers from Europe uh, asked either Massasoit or Squanto, I forget which story I read, uh, about when uh, when to plant uh, maize. And their story was to plant it when the oak leaves are the size of a squirrel's ear. Uh, and what I like about that story is that as long as you have oak leaves and uh, squirrels, uh, this actually travels extremely well. So that, you know, on the north side of a hill in New England, uh, you would want to plant corn later than on the south side of the hill just because of the exposure to the sun. And you can bet that the oak leaves on the north side of the hill would be smaller and slower to develop than the ones on the south side of the hill. So what's interesting is it's a, it's in, it sounds folkloric, of course, but it's incredibly discerning in terms of how it can be used almost anywhere in New England, whereas the Farmer's Almanac gives you a date. And the date is, I think, probably like a fail-safe date by which you can be almost certain that the final frost has disappeared because the worst thing that a farmer's almanac can do is to sort of have people plant and lose their crops. They'll lose faith in the almanac and you'll lose all your advertisers. And But that's a really crude instrument to have a certain date. And you're probably losing some planting time in New England just because they're likely to have a fail-safe date uh, in order to minimize the odds of there ever being a frost that will kill. And crude is a nice word there, too, the idea that you um, you generalize so so widely and, again, narrow the capacity to do things a certain way by creating this, as you say, this sort of one way to do things, uh, one way that uh, the way itself may travel, but it doesn't travel well necessarily. Sure. Right? It's, it, it's also, it, it relates to all the ways that we casually have in, common parlance of measuring things like uh, a stone's throw, uh, a pinch of, which are kind of crude but useful measurements in the way. My favorite example is the, uh, if you ask a Malay peasant how far it is to the next village, he's likely to say something like two cigarettes, right? Because he thinks that you want to know how long it takes. And and he's also attentive to the fact that y- you don't want the miles because if it's uphill village, it's going to take you longer to get there. He, and you, he assumes you're interested in how long it will take you. So the other example that I'm fond of is the Irish example of uh, measuring a farm. And the Irish, old style Irish uh, measurement was a farm of two cows, a farm of three cows, a farm of four cows, because they were interested in how many cows, mm-hmm. uh, whether it had the fodder for how many how many cows it had the fodder for. That was the only interesting thing, because if it were really nice land, it could be a quite small in terms of number of acres uh, and still be a farm of two cows or three cows. And if it was poor land, mm-hmm. you had to have more of it. And so they were asking the only relevant question that an Irish farmer wanted to ask, which is how many cows will it feed? Right. Uh, in your in, in again in two cheers you sort of walk through the ways in which we have worked towards creating simple generic 
and dominating narratives in terms of numeracy, I suppose, right? So uh, you do spend a fair amount of time on, on education and, and taking tests. The state measures one thing. These, again, are sort of forms of dominance. Uh, and um, the idea of uh, standardized anything leaves so much else out. So it's you know, to me, it's a, an important aspect of your work because, again, it flies in the face of what I find most disturbing about many narratives were being sold today, and in particular the the statistical narrative that says we're we're getting less violent, we're we you know the state is doing things right, we're the Western way is the right way, and that means all the things the West does is right too, right? right. So the the education system is the right one, even though it's failing all the time, it's the right one. So <laughs> it's hard to keep track of what what exactly I'm supposed to be thinking of in, in, ideologically. So it seems to me to be a kind of sad commentary that the forms of industrial management have come into the evaluation of teaching, scholarship, uh, knowledge, and so on in universities and high schools and primary schools, for that matter. Mm -hmm. uh, and this idea that you can measure these qualities by a quantitative measure and it seems to me, if if you there, there's a charm in that, and I might add that historically immigrants have loved this sort of quantitative because you give them, you show them the ladder they have to climb, and they know that's the ladder, and they'll climb the ladder, and the, there's something comforting to knowing what the standards of quality uh, are and exactly what you have to do to win this prize, that prize, and the other prize. And what it does, I think, especially in a democracy, is to convince the world that you are not making any judgments at all about quality. Uh, you're just turning the crank on a, a mechanical handle that measures quality. Um, and so there's no prejudice, no discrimination even possible in this. That's a, it's a, and of course, all the prejudices are buried in the assumptions of the marking and the tests and, and, uh, and how uh, evaluations, how answers are evaluated. So it seems to me that, that what we do, what we avoid there is a kind of serious discussion of quality and what we want education to produce, what kinds of people we want. It's a precious commodity, and who, distributing it is probably one of the most crucial things that a democracy uh, does. And one of the things that actually Yale used to do, I don't know if they do it now, they did it up to three or four years ago, was to reserve a third of the freshman class for people who would never have made it by the numbers, but who had demonstrated passion and excellence in something. So they'd take a kid from Iowa who had the biggest bug collection in Iowa, right? And they would take him right away, even though he couldn't add two and two. They would take somebody else who did differential calculus at age five but couldn't write an English sentence. So they took kind of one-sided, lopsided people who whose major uh, achievement had been I think, to not pay attention to their mom and dad and to just throw themselves at something that they loved. You know, E.O. Wilson would be a perfect example of someone who would be admitted to because who just spent all his life studying ants until, right, he made, a, he made a career of it. And so it seems to me now that once you, once you advertise that, that kind of portfolio of skills, there will be people trying to game that as well, right? Sure. And sure. advising you on what to, what to volunteer for, how to create. So all of these things are potentially gamed. But it seems to me that what we need to have instead of the numbers is, for example, if you say 
in history at the University of Indiana, you have to have two books to get tenure. Okay. Well, fine. But how good are those two books? Why can't we have a discussion on... And, and of course, that's filled with evaluations and prejudices, but we all become smarter when we continue to have discussions about what is quality and what is not quality, and everything is kind of out in the open, these judgments of quality, and, and not hidden. And if someone writes a book that everyone believes and realizes is going to be read 50 or 60 years from now, uh, but only one book, and someone else has produced two books that they're pretty sure will be forgotten in the next four or five years. Why the hell are you promoting someone with two books? Yeah. I mean, there's a that's the crudest of, an, of quantitative standards, but it's still a quantitative standard, and it illustrates my point. Uh, the measure becomes, uh, I guess it undermines the, the measure itself. Once you have a, a target or a goal right. or a measure, that the measure becomes the thing that you work towards, which then it can't measure what it was intended to measure in the first exactly. place. Exactly. It's self-destructive right. Uh, right. That, in exactly right. that way. That's True, right, right. I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. My guest is James Scott, author of Two Cheers for Anarchism. So the, the problem with education, though, and, and, and you, you spoke about the product of education, right, the idea that, um, that we have the capacity to think about what that product should be um, is, is sort of undermined, I suppose, by the idea that it's a state product in the first place, or, and it's compulsory, and it's, you know, it's, it serves the state to create a certain kind of being. And if the state is, is something that we're not, that might be objectionable, um, and again, I guess we're not necessarily saying the state's objectionable, but the, the product so far, does it reflect on what the state wants, right? So the, the idea that the state measures and creates nothing but a test-taking student body, right. then the state does not want much out of its population. It's a nice point. It's a nice point. And, and, it's, and it's worth saying, actually, that America is much more heterogeneous in this respect than most of the other countries in the world. I mean, in places like Japan and China and France and so on, there's one big test, right, for everybody in the country. And it's kind of one pyramid to climb, one ladder, one uh, everyone's preparing for the same test. It's a kind of national standardization. So you know what an education kind of means of people who've passed through that sort of grid. Uh, and you can depend on, whereas... The fact that you have a, a college degree in the United States may mean virtually nothing, or it may mean a great deal. It depends on. So it's we're far less standardized than most other countries, uh, and most other countries, I think, the degree that they have a centralized state, they're more likely to have a centralized system of education evaluation that that reflects that. And the French, the French, you know, history of the, the centralized Napoleonic state created that in spades. Mm. So we tend to nationalize in different ways. Yeah. I mean, primarily, it seems through our, our entertainment spheres, which is what politics now is also, right? Um, politics is an entertainment for us. As, as I'm sure you're aware, if you paid any attention to any of these debates that we're having, it's hard to imagine what politics is if that is it or what value it has, right? So how can I look at that and imagine a healthy political system? The Donald Trump speaking about his genitalia or uh, anything, I've tuned out for the most part because I don't think it's telling me anything. But is it telling me something or should I be learning something from what's going on in politics? Oh, I don't think I have much uh, original to add here. Uh, That's where 
I'm not a political <laughs> pundit or a political scientist even, but uh, it, it seems to me, uh, and here I'm just repeating what I've heard by, I thought, some intelligent um, commentators, that, that what you see is a tremendous amount of presumably anger and frustration uh, by a certain portion of the population. Let's, we shouldn't exaggerate how much of it it is. Uh, in which uh, the most kind of broad brush condemnations of the whole system uh, are greeted with glee and pleasure uh, in a carnivalesque world turned upside down. And it does say something about, the for, again, that portion of the population, the way in which these, uh, the, the political system has become, for them, completely delegitimated, right? And uh, it's then impossible for an insult to have any grip anymore because that's the normal currency, right? Yeah. Well, it's it's one of the things that as I watch it, I, I want to um, take advice from your books uh, and plant uh, yucca. Uh, to to begin to to plant the bread of anarchy or the bread of war is that is that what it was uh, the, the right farina de guerra yeah right, yeah, what yeah. It's called right. it seems necessary to to try to think in these ways again why I like the book so much is that it's it's it walks through many of the things that we sort of take for granted. And mm-hmm. you, you get to look at them in a different way and imagine what, what is this for? Why do we do things this way? Why are playgrounds the way they are? Why don't we do them differently? Why are gardens the way they are? Why don't we do them differently? Well, it's also looking at institutions. I was thinking, let's say, something that did not make it into the book, but my, my, my partner's mother is 97 or 8 years old, and she lives in a old age home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And... Uh, it is. She hates it. Uh, she's actually ethnically Chinese, um, and and she hates it. Uh, and it, it's a good uh, old age home. That is to say, it's clean. The staff is polite. It's kind of attractive. Uh, the meals are fine, uh, and the staff is attentive. And medical care is good, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And what's what strikes me is that it that and she hates it. And the reason she hates it. Is, because, is for anarchist reasons, although she w- the word anarchism would never pass her lips, is that it's taken away all her autonomy. They take good care of her, but they give her no autonomy a- a- at all. And so it seems to me that I, I, the, I then set about thinking, what would a good anarchist home in which the objective was to maximize the autonomy and freedom of people who were failing, right, if you like, in physical sense, and... So she's on the fifth floor, and when she wants to go out, she has to get dressed, go down the hallway, take an elevator, take another hallway, and then go out. It's not much of an outside that she gets to anyway. And so in my old age home, everyone would be on the first floor. They would have a sliding door that they could operate to go outside instantly, and there would be a place where they could be by themselves outside, and then another place where they could be with other people outside. The other thing is that she's in an institution in which there are... 400 people all waiting to die. Uh, and if you ever thought of uh, 
a setting for a clinical depression, uh, that's got to be it. And so from in my old age home, first of all, there would never be more than a dozen of these people together. And they would be mixed up right next to a daycare center with little kids where they could help out in small ways or have a second floor with university students who would have conversations with them, help them shop and so on. The other thing actually to fin finish this off is that is I realize how important for my own aunts and so on uh, food is for people who are really aging and the things that they love to eat. And so in my old age home, there would be First of all, there would be a kind of garden where they could uh, be helped with these high, you know, these gardens that are kind mm -hmm. of waste Some level. raised beds. Mm -hmm. Raised beds, right? They would be able to grow flowers and mm -hmm. vegetables that they were interested in doing. And maybe three times a week, someone would come and maybe do some shopping for them and cook the meals that they, or they could help if they wanted to, and right, and so on, or it could be under supervision. But the point is that they would be in control of what they ate, which had become such a large part of their life, and maybe invite some friends in, uh, and so on. So, it, but the, I found it interesting to think about, given the sort of constraints of an old age home, how would an anarchist design an old age home? And it wouldn't be about just taking care of people. It would be maximizing their choice and freedom and autonomy. That was a repeat of my interview with James Scott, author of Two Cheers for Anarchism, who's probably best known for his 1987 classic Weapons of the Week, Everyday Forms of Peasant Resistance. Scott joined me in the studio in March of this year when he was in Bloomington delivering one of the patent lectures at Indiana University. Next time on Interchange, Hunting Girls. Philosopher Kelly Oliver examines how recent popular culture represents young women as predators and prey, and the implication that violence, especially sexual violence, is an inevitable, perhaps even celebrated, part of a woman's maturity. Katniss Everdeen of The Hunger Games, Bella Swan of Twilight, Tris Pryor of Divergent, and other strong and resourceful characters subvert the fairy tale archetype of the helpless girl waiting to be rescued. Giving as good as they get, these young women access reserves of aggression to liberate themselves. But who truly benefits? And by meeting violence with violence, do these depictions justify male retaliation, making victimization into entertainment? Hunting Girls, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer and Joe Crawford is executive producer. Nina Simone's Ain't Got No, I Got Life takes us into the jazz menagerie coming up next on WFHB.